Hey, friends and gamers, welcome to episode 17 of the Frenchie Plays Games podcast. Hey, friends and gamers, welcome to Frenchie Plays Games. I am Frenchie and hope you're doing well. Greetings from a very cold uh, winter night here in uh, Colorado, where I live uh, in the United States. And I uh, hope this finds you warm and well, particularly my friends in the Southern Hemisphere. Go summer. And uh, but for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, it's our turn to be in the chill. I uh, hope everything's going well. Excuse me while I grab a little bit of a cup of coffee here. You know, coffee is one of those foods that you can have uh, any time of the day, you know, breakfast, dinner and everything like that. Speaking of breakfast, uh, you know, here's a question for you, a little dad humor. So what does a thesaurus have for breakfast? A synonym roll. I know that's a groaner. All right. For that, I'm just going to go ahead and quiet. Wash that joke down with some coffee and go for it. So. Let's go ahead and, and kind of go over a little bit of what we want to do on uh, this episode here. And I accidentally hit the wrong page of notes, so I got to cue this up to what I want to talk about for uh, for this week. Uh, you know, I'm starting to look back on January. Here it is, January 29th is when I'm recording this. So hopefully this comes out over the next couple of days for you. And can you believe it? 2023 has one month almost already in the books. Uh, just a couple of short Seemed like yesterday, and in some ways it, it was literally. Um, we were wrapping up 2022, going into 2023. A lot of us were going best games of 2022, most anticipated games of 2023. And here we are, and it's almost February. And we are actually like hurtling through the year, not so fast, but we've got one month basically that we're turning the page on. And the year's going. You know, we're talking, we're seeing games that are getting fulfilled from uh, different uh Kickstarter and, and GameFound campaigns. We're seeing, uh, you know, some cons are starting to happen as well. So we're seeing some momentum of the year that we typically uh, go for. A lot of people are planning uh, their trips and, and conventions and everything. So it's an exciting time. But uh, still, I can't believe that January is almost gone. And I look back on this month and I've got, last I counted, it's 21 or 22 games that I played this month, which for me was quite a bit. And I've had an extremely busy month. I've got a lot of things going on uh, work-wise. And so having the time to play all those games, let alone even do content, uh, has been surprising to me. But I'm really happy for what I've done. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of those games here as we go forward. But I want to do something real quick. I want to start off the episode and give a little shout-out to uh, one of my friends. So I live here in Northern Colorado and I'm part of a game group that has been in existence for well over 10 years. And I mentioned them before and, and they have a house that they bought and they have a business where they have events and, and stuff, but they typically have everything centered around our Saturday evening game group. And one of the participants who's been in this uh, game group for many, many years is, his name is Jay Ryan Op, O-P-P. Uh, Ryan is, is how we go by. And I want to call attention. He's got a game that, you know, he hasn't asked me to do this, but I figured, hey, you know, he's a local publisher and uh, here's a game that's coming. Now, he's actually already a somewhat published um, game designer. He published a um, an add-on or a um, 
module to a game that was put out back in 2018. Now, the game is called Book of Dragons. Uh, this was a game of one deck and 40 cards, unlimited games. And it had a lot of, uh, a lot of game designers that were taking this deck and saying, here are games you can play with the deck. Now, I've never played this, only looked a little bit about how it is. But this game was designed by a number of different designs. Uh, most importantly, uh, Martin Wallace and Mike Fitzgerald. Martin Wallace has done a ton of games, such as the Brass games. And then Mike Fitzgerald, probably most known for Baseball Highlights uh, 2045 Diamonds, which is one of my favorite uh, uh, card games that doesn't get enough love. And so Ryan was able to go ahead and put in a reflections module for that game. And so he won a design contest that allowed him to do that. So he has a new game coming up that if you go on a BGG, you can go on. He is planning on getting this game. It is a small uh, card driven game uh, and it's called Reflections in the Looking Glass. Uh, and basically it says, which Alice is real? Which is the reflection? Can you escape Wonderland? And again, he's not jumping on the bandwagon necessarily that, uh, you know, we're seeing these Alice in Wonderland themes. Wonderland's War being a very successful and very popular game. One of my favorite games from 2022. Uh, I'm just going to read what's on Board Game Geek here. So Reflections in the Looking Glass is a curiously clever card game for two players featuring a beautiful cast of colorful characters from Lewis's, Lewis Carroll's Wonderland stories. The rules are easy to understand and each round plays quickly. But the whimsical strategy wrapped up in the decision of which card to keep and which giveaway is linked while deducing if your opponent's trying for a positive or negative score, that can cause the most rational of adventures to go slightly mad. At least you'll be in good company. So uh, this game is going to be, from what he's told me, will probably be a crowdsource at some point this year. So definitely check it out. Uh, I don't have a website for him. There's not one listed on BGG. But uh, we were talking about this a, a few weeks ago, and so wanted to go ahead and make sure I give him a plug. It's just kind of neat. You know, whether it's a big game like uh, Last Light is a popular game that uh, Roy Kennedy from the Dice Tower is publishing, and he's like kind of beside himself. He feels, you know, this imposter syndrome, and it's like, dude, you have earned it. Um, when you're publishing a game, even if it's a small game and you're just starting out, that's a pretty big deal. And so I just want to give him a little bit of... Uh, center stage to start off this he's kind of a little bit of a local celebrity for us as well he has another game that uh, we played a prototype uh, a few months ago um, that I'm not going to talk about just yet because I'm not sure if that is the final uh, working title but it was a pretty good game good worker placement game that a few of us harder gamers decided to play and uh, came back with some feedback and he's got it pretty dialed in fairly well so J. Ryan Opp is the designer, and the game is Reflections in the Looking Glass. So a game to uh, maybe just go ahead and follow on BGG. Not a lot of activity just yet, but uh, look forward to it uh, as you uh, see it progress towards getting crowdsourced. So a couple other things that I want to go over, too. I found an interesting um, group that popped up on my meetup, and... You know, there's a lot of board game groups. You know, that's how I found the group that I'm in and a few others that I've played with here throughout Colorado. In fact, you know, the one that I was involved in back uh, on the East Coast before I moved out here a few years ago. And I had one come through and I'm like, oh, you know, it's not really the normal board game, but it's a game called Cribbage, which if you don't know, Cribbage is a game that's been around for about 400 years, public domain game, deck of cards, you use pegs on a wooden or, you know, the, typically they're wooden, but a track to score because the score is continually changing like every few seconds or whatnot. And it's a really dealing out a deck of cards, um, taking a group of cards 
uh, having card play on the table and then taking and scoring the hand and then the dealer gets an extra hand because you're going to actually pitch a couple of extra cards to that. This game has been around for a long time. I learned it from my grandfather, started playing it in college. And so there's a local cribbage meetup, which I'm pretty excited to go. It's going to be staged every other week and uh, midweek, close by to where I am. And again, you know, I think a lot of people don't look at some public domain games. They look, they frown on them because we are in the modern board game renaissance. Yet there are games like Cribbage, which I think is a very, very good game. Uh, and I'm probably going to talk about that at some point down the road. Uh, Go has, has fascinated people for many, many years. Chess, you know, and there's games that are very much variations of these public domain games. I just mentioned Diamonds not too long ago. Diamonds is kind of a variation on Hearts. Diamonds was created by Mike Fitzgerald. Again, if you have never played that game, it's a nice little trick-taking, bidding, hitting information game with the amount of gems you have. Really, really nice, and I think fits a little bit of a sweet spot. The Crew, you know, is a based on uh, trick-taking games. You've barely taken that mechanic, really, uh, you know, not only based on a game per se, but taking the trick-taking mechanic and building that up. So there's a lot of, of really cool games that have their roots on that, and I would love to see some of these games uh, that get published take a little bit more of the public domain games, games that have been around, and twist them and change them. I continue to see there's chess variants all over the place. I'm not a chess player. I don't know if I really care to play it anymore, but I'm intrigued by the fact that there are games that take that mechanic and come up with something different or take the gameplay. Onatama being a very great example of that, very popular example of a very good game that I would suggest to many people, fantastic two-player game. So a couple of other news updates here for Frenchie. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about a, uh, a topic of the quote-unquote week as I do these every other week. And then we'll launch into the games that I've played recently and then a game I want to focus on a little bit. So I have fallen into, um, I wouldn't say fallen in, like I'm not fanatical about it, I'm not addicted to it, but I heard a lot about Marvel Snap and decided to take the plunge. And I've got it here on my iPad. And uh, Frenchie has gotten bit by the Marvel Snap craze. So if you don't know what Marvel Snap is, it's a digital game uh, based in the Marvel Universe, Marvel Comics uh, IP in which uh, you are you have a deck of cards that you can play and of course there's you can play it for free and you get uh, you know you just have to progress over time or you can pay you can get more robust cards digitally which no problem with that it's no different than me paying to buy a you know deck of cards for you know collectible card game or whatever like that and what you're doing is you're taking the hand of cards and there are three different locations in the center of the board and you're playing against an online opponent and then each location is going to have something different. Like, you know, one location might be, okay, all cards here uh, will be added plus one to that. Or this one is, okay, uh, rocks will go ahead in your deck, which will booger up your deck and then be rendered a little bit. Or this location, uh, you can only play one card. Or you can't play any cards here until turn four. And there's six turns of the game. So you're going to be taking cards that basically have, an have a cost because you're going to start off with one energy and turn run. You're going to need to play cards that... Uh, add up to one energy. So typically it's one card. Then you're going to have in turn two, you're going to have two energy, so on and so on. So you're going to play these cards that, you know, if I have Hulk and it's turn six and he has six energy, that's all I can play. But if I have two cards that I want to play that are number three, I can play two number three cards because it's three energy and three energy. 
And so each opponent's taking turns, you're playing, your opponent's playing. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to go ahead. Now each hero has a power that's associated with them. And so what you're trying to do is have more power than your opponent in two of the three locations. So as I'm playing cards, you know, maybe I'm trying to focus on the location here on the left and I'm trying to get 14 power. My opponent gets 10 power. Middle location, he's got 20 and I've got 6. And in the other location, I've got 14 and he has 13. Uh, then I would win because I have two locations where I have more power than my opponent. So it's a really neat game that uh, plays. And I, I grab my iPad every once in a while late at night before I go to bed, maybe get a game or two off. And it's a really neat little game. Uh, a lot of people talked about can we get a board game version of this. Now I've heard some people say that, you know, it's basically a, a ripoff of Smash Up. Um, I wouldn't say ripoff. It would definitely be a, a spinoff and everything, but I've heard those terms used. Uh, Smash Up, if you are not aware, is a game by, I think it's AG. And it was a game where you take a couple of decks. So you might have uh, uh, gnomes and you might have pirates. Or you might have dinosaurs and you might have, uh, you know, Vikings or whatever. I can't remember all of them. They had a lot of expansions. And then you'll have different locations within the uh, the board. And so everyone's playing. And then each location gives you a different power. Of course, your cards have a different power as well. So very similar to that. And then you're just trying to play and try to get points at the location. And there's points for first, second, third. And then sometimes, you know, some of those, there won't be points for third or, or whatever. So each card is very different. A lot of vari uh, variety, a lot of variability, a lot of replayability. Uh, I would say that the game's based quite a bit like that. I also do think, too, as I look up a game that I haven't touched for a while that I've got most of everything for is... Uh, a defunct living card game from Fantasy Flight, and that's Warhammer 40k Conquest. It was a pretty decent game uh, where you have a number, and I think it was seven locations, and you're trying to go ahead and, and get three before your opponent. It's been a number of years since I played it, uh, but set in the Warhammer 40k universe, and very similar things to that. So a lot of variability. Uh, fun game. Really enjoy it. I, I, I see where the appeal is. And uh, something that I would uh, say, hey, good to recommend. I'm not going to spend any money onto it. Just going to be a casual player and dabble in it and everything and just see where it takes me. Uh, it would be cool to see that game get into a physical manifestation that you can actually play in real life on a table somewhere. Uh, I am seeing it's still a continuing ton of Marvel games. There's, I think, two more Marvel games that are getting announced for this year. Their names escape me. Um, so please don't uh, don't hold me uh, accountable for that. I didn't prep for that on this uh, on this episode. But you had like Marvel Remix last year, and so there's a lot of games coming out. There's a Kickstarter right now for more expansions to Marvel United. You Frenchie, yep. Can you just go ahead and just uh, take the money right out of my account now? Don't even have to wait for the crowdsourcing to be done on Kickstarter. Um, Marvel is continuing to be very hot, and uh, games continue to be there. But uh, Marvel Snap's a fun game. Enjoy quite a bit and uh, check it out. You you might like it if uh, digital games are, are your jam. Uh, if not, then we can move on to the next couple of games that I'm going to talk about. So the next two games I'm going to talk about, I talk about quite a bit. And I want to just give a little bit briefing onto these games because I play them once to twice a month. So these are two of my favorite and epic board games. Because I have some coffee here that... I play. Uh, I want to give a little bit because I haven't really elaborated on them too, too much. So Twilight Imperium 4th Edition and War of the Ring are two of my all-time favorite games to play. Um, they are both long, epic games. Uh, one is a science fiction 
theme based in an independent universe created by Fantasy Flight uh, founder Christian Peterson. And War of the Ring, obviously, is a game based on J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, great novels from the Lord of the Rings and his whole Middle-Earth trilogy and all the other supporting novels from that. So let's start with Twilight Imperium 4. Twilight Imperium 4 was really just kind of a, I wouldn't necessarily say a sandbox, it is, but it's an epic game where you have these textiles and every player is going to have a different faction. And uh, home system of planets. Planets will have resources, they'll have influence. And the game is really designed where you are actually taking these uh, different actions. These actions might be taking your tokens that enable you to go ahead and activate by placing a token on a system. That moving ships, doing different things, um, you know, through that. And so you're doing these tactical actions going into combat. Uh, you also have cards that you draft which are strategy cards numbered one through eight, which allows everyone to go ahead and take an action. But when that card is played, all the other players can take a secondary action by spending a token. It is a similar action to that main action, but a little bit more subdued. And then you also have component actions. So anything on your cards, your playmat, or anything you have in front of you that says action, you can use that as your action. Uh, and the game looks complex. It's amazing. The team that I use, that I play this, uh, and we set up, People that are coming upstairs to see it in the big room that we have, and I've got it blinged out too. I've got it on a riser uh, game table that I have, a portable uh, level up system from Spider-Mind Games. Uh, I've got a custom-made play map that can fit eight people because I have the expansion. I've got uh, dice that are colored for each of the different factions. I just blinged the whole thing out tremendously. In fact, I just got 3D printed gates that stand upright, so those are the wormholes on the board. But even without all that bling, everyone looks at it and they go, oh my word, and they're fascinated by it in two ways. They're fascinated that it looks interesting. I'm not sure if that's for me, but it just looks fascinating and intriguing. And some people go, okay, great, I'm going to go downstairs and play code names now. And uh, you always get that. And, and it's, it's not sliding, it's just a, it's not a game that's going to be for everyone. Um, but they see it and, and it's like really not a complex game at all. It's actually a very simple game. There's strategies, there's nuances, there's negotiation, there's phases in the game where everyone's voting on laws that'll change the aspect of the game. Uh, and the game's really based on a point-driven game. And I got a friend of mine um, who I play War of the Ring with, which is ironic because I'll be mentioning that game a little bit. And he loves that game. It's his favorite game. But he has criticism on TI4, not because of the length. I mean, we played yesterday... Uh, we went about, including about a half hour to grab some food, about seven hours for five of us, which is, is fine. I mean, that's what I elect to do. I want to play a game all day. I'll play a game all day. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, you want to play, you know, three games in, in uh, one hour, 20 minute short games. That's fine too. That's everyone's personal choice. But Twilight Imperium is really based a game on where you're trying to get points. You're trying to get objectives, score the objectives that are available for everybody. Plus you have some secret ones. And everything you do on the board is geared towards getting those objectives. So it's not really a combat-driven game. It's not necessarily a game of negotiation. It's a game of pulling any of the levers that you have based on how your faction plays to go ahead and uh, get those points, 10 points, and there's a long game of 14 points. And that's really the game. And, uh, you know, it's not supposed to be a thematic game. However, what happens as a byproduct of that is always stories to tell. And it's one of those games, in fact, we have some some great stories and not to go ahead and, and elaborate on There's one game, there's one card, uh, and I'll do this just a little bit because, yeah, I do want to elaborate on it. I was going to spare you, but I'm not going to spare you. Uh, so the uh, this card that comes up that gets selected, we've played five games. And there's a deck of, I can't remember how many uh, cards, I would say, 
got to be about 100 cards, smaller cards, and they are the they're cards in the agenda phase. So when the center planet Mechatol Rex uh, gets uh, controlled, then that activates an agenda phase. In every phase, you now have an agenda phase of that turn in which all the players vote on two different cards that get turned up one at a time. And they cast votes for those laws. So uh, with that, uh, there has been a card that's come up five games in a row. I thought it was four out of five, but I was corrected by my by my friends. It's five. And it's a game where uh, whoever's in control of Mechatol Rex, you know, you are you are reading the game or whoever's the speaker. And uh, it's, um, you know, you go ahead and if everyone votes four, then you roll a die. If it's one to five, uh, these things happen. But if it's six or ten, then you're going to go ahead and destroy all of the ships and units that are on Mechatol Rex and every adjacent system around that also loses everything as well. We've had that happen five times in a row. I just happened to be the unfortunate recipient of that yesterday. And it was hilarious because even though it hit me, I was able to recover uh, in that sector, in that system very quickly. The next turn I was able to get ships in there and everything. But what was very funny is this happened so much and we always walk away with great stories and it's just an epic game. So Twilight Imperium 4, one of my favorite games that I love to play. I can't talk about it enough, but I'm going to uh, go ahead and not talk about it too much because I could talk about that every episode. And I want to give highlight to some of the other games. So the other game that I play quite a bit of, I just want to talk about. I figure we go ahead and hit these two and then you won't hear much of that going forward. Maybe, okay. Uh, is War of the Ring. War of the Ring is by Ari's Games. A-R-E-S Games. And uh, it's a game based on the Lord of the Rings universe where basically you have the map of Middle-earth and one player, they say it can be played with three or four players, but it's really a two-player game in all, in all uh, intents and purposes. Uh, one player plays the Shadow Peepers. Uh, peepers? Okay. Um, wow. Peoples. Uh, and then uh, they, they have uh, Saruman and Sauron and uh, the Witch King and all that. And so they're trying to dominate Middle-earth traditionally by a military victory. And then you have the Free Peoples, which are really the Elves, the Dwarves, the Fellowship, and then what they're trying to do is also win. Now, they can win by a military victory. It's very, very difficult to do. They have fewer points in which to do it from because it's difficult to do. The primary way of them winning is uh, doing enough to go ahead and get Frodo and Sam into Mordor so they can get to Mount Doom and drop the ring. But as they go, they're thrown with corruption, so they can actually lose the game if they take on too much corruption. Uh, and it's a game that uh, is just great. It's epic. It's themed very well. Uh, you know, everything in the game has been brought out with things that are actually happened in all the books and uh, all the supporting uh, novels that J.R.R. Tolkien has, has written over the years. And it's a really fun game. Now, we play on my friend Dan. Uh, he's created a custom board for that. Uh, and that's just a labor of love. But, you know, there's a lot of different things. I'm looking at actually getting some 3D printed mountains to make the board game uh, look really nice and just kind of a little more themed and everything. But it's a game that will take typically three to four hours. And it might be able to play a little bit faster, but typically you're going to have about three or four hours. Card-driven game. You're taking, uh, you know, these dice. You're rolling the dice based on the die rolls or the different actions you can take. Uh, and there are similar actions for both the shadow and the free peoples but they do play a little bit different and then there's other things that can be activated as well within uh, the different cards each card has a dual purpose so you can use a card uh, to go ahead and play that as an event or if you enter combat uh, then you can use that as, as a bottom action you have a combat uh, action that you can have and each card also has a number to kind of show initiative of who goes first based on the number 
great game. Uh, really harkens back to a lot of things that uh, you know are are in the are in the novels. And a lot of times when you're playing the game, you're like, yeah, I can totally see. Now, obviously, the game's going to end up different every time. Again, a lot of replayability. There's a lot of expansions for that too. There's a pending one that's been trying to get out for a couple of years. We're not sure if that has been fully fleshed out or what's going on. But even just with the base game, a lot of fun, a lot of uh, variety. Again, set in that phase, it is still the same. Uh, you know, basically, you know, the the uh, the shadow goes ahead and overruns Middle Earth, or you're able to get Sam and Frodo into uh, Mount Doom, or they get corrupted, or you're able to win a little bit of a military victory. So there's some, uh, some nuances in there that'll change a little bit, but it stays very much intact game to game, and that's just the brilliance of how the game was designed and wove all the narration and, and, and writing into it. So that is uh, one of my two favorite games besides Twilight Imperium. Just wanted to share a little bit. I'm actually playing War of the Ring again later on this week. But until then, let's go ahead with uh, a topic of the week that I want to talk about here on Frenchie Plays Games. All right. <clears throat> All right, so one, one thing I want to talk about uh, this week is uh, the open game license topic from Wizards of the Coast. And uh, just to give you a little update onto where everything is and everything, it's been a roller coaster six or seven weeks, I think, for the RPG community. In fact, maybe a little bit longer than that. Let me get you up to speed a little bit in case... Uh, you haven't heard me. My, I did a video on the open game license a little bit. Let me start from the beginning and just kind of ramp up to present day. So uh, Wizards of the Coast is the owner of the um, Dungeons & Dragons role-playing game, which has been around for 40 years now, almost 50 years now, actually. In fact, I think Joe uh, Mangiello, who is a well-known actor and avid D&D player, I think he's working on a documentary to celebrate the 50th uh, year as well. So really excited for that. But that's neither here nor there. It's been around for a long, long time. I remember growing up with it, playing first edition, playing basic and expert, and it's just brought a lot of fun. Uh, it did not resonate with me for many years, you know, 90s, 2000s. Uh, and then towards uh, fourth edition when they came out, dabbled a little bit, and then really have been uh, into it. I don't play it too much, but fifth edition when it came out. Anyway, with, uh, with Wizards of the Coast, uh, and they bought it from TSR, which was the original company that had uh, created uh, Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, when they came up with 3rd edition, when TSR was pretty much uh, getting to be an insolvency, they purchased the IP, purchased the game, republished the 3rd edition. And with that, they published what's called an open game license, which simply says that uh, anybody can go ahead and use the... Um, game mechanics and the the content and everything in the game um, open game you can go ahead and do that and as long as you're describing some kind of uh, attribute that uh, you know compatible with third edition compatible with DD compatible with the d20 system which was the core mechanic you're able to do that and it allowed content creators to go ahead and create different uh, different source books uh, different um, adventure modules different campaign settings maps you name it and it really helped buoy third edition and really rally the community, which I think at the time was a great move and very well needed. And they tried constructing that open game license with an aura of irrevocability, which means that there was nothing they could do to alter it. Let's fast forward to uh, about 2008, I believe it was. And third edition ended up with a lot of bloat. A lot of people thought it was just too cumbersome, too many rules, too many features. 
and everything. And uh, so D&D is like, well, let's go ahead and make a simplified version and created fourth edition. But with fourth edition, what they tried doing, so you tried suspending that open game license. And I don't remember some of the exact details, but between the fact that fourth edition was not really a solid edition, some people that love it, it was more of a miniatures game, more tactical. Uh, so it, it was a little devoid of some of the role-playing aspects from what people say. I really didn't play it much. Um, so that backfired and a fourth edition didn't sell very well. Uh, in the meantime, because of where Wizards of the Coast was going, uh, Paizo, who had a history with Dungeons and Dragons, created a lot of uh, stuff under the open game license, including the Dungeon and the Dragon magazine, which they had, uh, said, hey, you know what, there's this white space here. They created their own role-playing game called Pathfinder based on uh, the 3rd edition, really 3.5, because there was an updated version within 3rd edition, and then they took it and kind of got it from there. So they were able to do that, and they became very popular. And then D&D is like, you know, we need to go ahead, Wizards, and change up what we did. So they came up with 5th edition back in 2015. And as you know, the most popular edition ever, very accessible. Uh, you know, none of these editions are perfect, so there's always pros and cons, but very, very popular and has actually allowed. Um, th uh, with that, they, they, they said, hey, we're going to go ahead and continue to tie this into the open game license. So really double down on here. We have this open game license. We really need to open it up. So they did, and it created Critical Role and a lot of places, uh, Penny Arcade, and a lot of third-party creators, some very popular, uh, some that are just... You know, everyday people that are just putting out online content or whatever, not just videos or streaming, but, you know, PDFs of adventures and selling them on some of the different marketplaces online and allowed that to become a community of Rising Tide that lifted the entire community and, and lifted 5th edition, which made it wildly, wildly popular. And D&D has never been popular in its history. So that was to see now so now we're talking you know maybe seven years now that uh, fifth edition has been out with a plethora of books and a plethora of popular popularity and so dnd is trying to create and it happens editions continue to evolve and everything creating a one dnd uh which is their play testing for another edition which they hope they could be or they're claiming it can be compatible with fifth, fifth edition backwards compatible anyway so they said that they were going to make some tweaks to the open game license then what happened in the first week, I believe, of January, they came out with this with this uh, new thing of the open game license, which basically uh, was very restrictive. You couldn't do anything. Uh, you know, you're going to have to pay royalties. You're basically going to have to register with them. If you make a certain amount, your royalties are increased. Kind of a tiered system. And it was this huge pushback. There was also any content you have with us is going to be ours. And there's contracts handed out, too. These documents were leaked. Public outcry was massive. And there was this huge exodus going away, a lot of legal stuff that was getting prepped and primed and everything. And so it looked like D&D was going to very much struggle because the community was outraged. And I've created a little video on that as well. And my opinion was, you, know, you can do what you want, but I'm not going to go ahead and contribute anymore to uh, what Hasbro, the parent company, is doing in Wizards of the Coast because of this. They had a botched attempt at Magic the Gathering, which is their other popular brand, on the 30th anniversary. And you could just see there was a lot of this greed seeping in. Well, Friday. So this is Sunday. Friday, I was watching uh, or reading at the end of the day, and I'm like, oh my word, what's happened? Wizards has said, we heard you loud and clear. We are not changing open game license. Open game license 1.0 that they created a long time ago is going to stay intact. They took 
their, uh, their, their mechanics and they put in what's called a systems reference document. They updated it. They're going to have a permanent house for that. They've turned that on. They folded that into a Creative Commons license, which basically means it's, uh, again, open sourcing. And so now they have done this to repair uh, a lot of what they've done. So just two thoughts on this here, uh, three thoughts I, I want to portray. Number one is, first of all, kudos for them for finally realizing it. We wish that it hadn't gone this far. And again, I'm giving a lot of speech to um, a role-playing game, but it's games. It's part of the community, whether it's a tabletop or a board game or whatever. That's fine. I want to uh, chat about this a little bit because I think it's definitely relevant and also can help us understand the, the industry as a whole. So great, fantastic wizards. You have seen the error of your ways. You have relented. You repented, I guess you want to say. And uh, so fantastic. However, there is still going to be some fallout. There is still going to be the ripple effects for your actions. And, uh, you know, you have the freedom of choice, but you do not have the freedom of choice of the consequences of, of anyone's actions. Wizards is still going to see a lot of that. There's already people coming up with, um, you know, different open game licenses, something else, and they're going to tie RPGs into that. There's been a lot of other publishers that have lined up for that. So there is still probably going to be enough ill will to go ahead and have a diminishing effect on what's going on. And that's fine, but that's what happens, okay? However, uh, one person who I mentioned in that video, Dungeon Master Dave, who's probably one of the uh, more popular content creators that you don't hear because he's not necessarily doing stuff tremendously on YouTube, but uh, he watches Patreon, uh, some, some Instagram videos. Uh, he's a long-term Dungeon Master and really knows what his stuff is. So I agree with him on this one 100%. You know what? Wizards has, uh, has gone back. Everything's good. It's up to us as a community to lean into them, say, we accept your apology. Let's go ahead and work together to continue to make the D&D community and the RPG community strong. Now, that doesn't mean, again, that things will will continue. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are still going to be competitors that are going to create stuff and people that are going to go to other platforms. But I agree with him, though, because it's like, let bygones be bygones. You admitted it, which is huge for a large company to do that. Let's go ahead and do that. We do not want an animus, you know, we don't want this animosity to exist within the community. Let's work together. We may still have some differences of opinions and we might focus on a little bit more of our content that doesn't fit into that, but let's go ahead. Let's not shun you just because that's happened. And that leads me into my third point. So yes, Wizards has acknowledged it. There'll still be some uh, ramifications for their actions. But yes, we should still lean into, uh, you know, Wizards and we should still lean into, hey, They've admitted their error. Who are we to go ahead and judge? Let's go ahead and embrace them. If they're coming to us saying, we're sorry, then let's go ahead and forgive them. And that leads me to my conclusion from my video. Basically, uh, hey, I was not going to participate in anything else that Wizards Coast was going to do, which was a shame. It was ironic, too, because I got from Hasbro Pulse the, um, the Hero Quest uh, last expansion from that board game from Avalon Hill, which is a subsidiary. Of theirs, of theirs as well. I was actually not going to do an unboxing of it because I'm like, I'm not going to give them the space. Uh, no, that's not going to be the case. I'm going to do that. Uh, I'm going to continue to support, uh, you know, their products and everything as long as they continue to uphold the community. Uh, yeah, I'm going to work on that. Uh, we'll probably buy some of the new uh, books that they have coming out this year. And so really looking forward to some healing time 
for the RPG community. So I am excited that uh, we finally come to it. It's sad that we had to get to this point for this to happen, but here we are. Let's embrace it, let's heal, let's move on. It'll be interesting to see how the RPG community uh, continues to evolve from this unfortunate incident over the last uh, couple of months. And, you know, I do think too that it sure serves as a little bit of a reminder for us in the board game community to um, continue to support local. These big companies, sometimes they're, they're just taking care of shareholders or they have a myopic view and it's very difficult as a big company, you tend to lose that touch with who your core consumers are. And it's very difficult to do that. Fortunately, they did have a survey. They got resounding, resounding, resounding negativity from their surveys and people that went to and I'm sure lawyers and, and pending lawsuits and everything. So, but they listened. They didn't dig down and say, well, we're just gonna go ahead and see you in court and double down on everything. They let up. That's a very rare feat for a big, big company, a multinational company too. So I'll give them props for that. And uh, let's go ahead and move forward. So that's my update on the open game license and uh, look forward to, uh, to some rosy time coming up ahead and hopefully we can have some continued fun in the RPG community without all the background drama. Let's just go ahead and play. All right, so here's what you wanna talk about today. Uh, I'm gonna go over the games that uh, I have played in the uh, last uh, few weeks. Uh, I'm not going to highlight them all, but I've got some games that I'm, I'm mentioning because these are more of the recent games that have come up, excuse me, um, and I want to give some highlight. And I'm going to talk about what I'm, what I'm going to say is my, uh, my game of the week, uh, which is Ready, Set, Bet, game I was looking forward to playing this month. So let's start off from the top of the list. And we'll start off with uh, From Days of Wonder. Uh, uh, the game that uh, it was really took everyone by surprise and has been a, a really an enjoyable and a treat to play, and that's Heat, Pedal to the Metal. Heat, Pedal to the Metal is a racing game uh, based on the 1960s uh, Formula One circuit, and each player is going to have a deck of cards. It's a deck-building game, uh, and it's similar to some of the mechanics of Flamme Rouge, which I'm not going to go into um, that game specifically, but Flamme Rouge was a bike racing game. Uh, you know, based in the uh, French bike racing, European bike racing. And so I had a car-driven system, which uh, Heat Pedal to the Metal is based on. So each player is going to have a deck of cards, which are the same number of cards. And you're going to play those cards, and those cards are going to um, have you uh, determine your speed or how far you're going to go. And this track that you have, now there's four tracks that come with the game, and there's a lot of modules with the game too, so the immense variability of the game is uh, is great. But... You're going to have these cards, you're going to play the cards, and you're going to be shifting gears up and down, and based on the gear you're in is the number of cards you can play. So if I'm in second gear, I can play two cards, so the combined value of those cards will dictate my speed. Three and four, I can play three or four cards, so you can see how you can go faster. But the cards that I have may not necessarily be the highest cards. I may have already played in third gear, a four and a three, and now guess what? I have four cards to play in fourth gear. I've got a one, a one, a two, and a one. I'm not going to go nearly as fast as I did before. Um, but there's other ways you can you can move ahead a little bit and gain some other things. Uh, you know, there's slipstreaming, where if you're beside or next to a car, you can go ahead a couple of spaces. Uh, if you are in last place, you get this adrenaline boost where you can go ahead and go one. So the game is you're going to see the uh, players playing the cards and leapfrogging. But part of the game is pushing your luck because, uh, you know, you can take on heat. You can take on these cards that are heat, which are really no good to you. And so if you have too many cards, uh, you will go ahead and overheat and you're gonna have to go ahead and reset everything. 
but that push your luck element of going faster, of uh, taking on cards, of taking some risk, uh, it's a good risk reward game, uh, really makes the game very fun. Now also in the corners of the track, there is a number and if you're exceeding that speed, you have to pay that number of cards. So if I have a speed of seven, I play cards that add up to seven and I've got a corner and it's three. That means I'm four over. Now I have to go ahead and take four heat cards from my play map, put them in a discard pile, okay? And that means I'm gonna have that many more cards in my hand to booger up my hand, which means I'm not gonna be able to go because my car's overheating, it's not performing as well. If I don't have enough cards, I take all the cards, put them in there, and then I'm going to go ahead and determine if I spin out or not, which means I'm gonna stop or potentially stop just before that turn and basically go back to first gear and start over again. Uh, as you have cards of heat build up your hand, you can shift down and you can do cooldown modes, which means you can shift down and let your card to go ahead and cool down and you can discard some additional cards. Obviously, more cards when you're in first gear. Game is really fast. The game is really fun. I taught this to two new gamers a few weeks ago uh, that were new to our group and they came in and they had a really fun time because it was a game that they could understand. Uh, the husband was struggling to understand it. Once he, we got about halfway or almost three quarters away through the first lap. He's like, I get it. He ended up winning. Um, but uh, but it wasn't until towards the very last couple of games, a uh, couple of, uh, of rounds there that we were playing and he eclipsed his wife. And I'm like, well, I guess you guys have got this pretty well. Um, it's a fun game. I really think that this game incorporates what a racing game is. It's fast. Uh, again, you could say, let's go ahead and do three or four laps. You can do as long as you want. But it's fast, it's fun, it's approachable. It's intuitive to me. The shifting the gears, taking on more heat, shifting down the gears, peeling off some of that heat, the cool down, the speeds into the turns, does a lot. And the variety, uh, you know, you got weather modules, different things that add different elements to the game. So brilliant design. Uh, I'm really happy to see Days of Wonder have a design, probably the first one since Five Tribes, I think, that has been a resounding hit. It's already 231 on Board Game Geek as of today. So, uh, and again, those are all relative, but it just shows you how popular and how well this game has resonated. Uh, and I haven't ranked, uh, looked at the games for 2022 as far as uh, which one is higher and how they're rating. It's been about a month since I've done that. Uh, so I'm sure there's a lot of changes since the last time. But a really great game. Check it out. Buy it. You really uh, you really won't be disappointed. So Heat Pedal to the Metal was uh, one of my games that I played over the last few weeks here in January. Next game I have... I got it. it was right at the tail end of December. It was a crowdsourced game, and this is from Chip Theory Games. Chip Theory Games makes a lot of games that have a lot of different strategic gameplay mechanics, but the core component to these games are, are poker chips, and hence the name Chip Theory. So these games are definitely not light because poker chips, when you start having a handful of them, they can, they can weigh quite a bit. So this game is a solo-only game, and according to Board Game Geek, it says it's for one player, and it's best at one player, so I'm pretty pumped that they uh, that they agree with that. It'd have been funny if they had said a number other than one. It's obvious, but that's just kind of how the default mode is. Anyway, the game is Hoplomachus Victorum. Hoplomachus Victorum, uh, and there's a couple of other games in Hoplomachus, so this is based in that uh, universe. And uh, what it is, it's you are basically around the Roman times, and you are so... Uh, uh, Pluto, I was going to say, is it Pluto? Try to remember. Um, yeah, the god Pluto is threatening Mount Vesuvius, so, but once a champion, if the champion is able to go ahead and appease him, then uh, then you can save your uh, your area from destruction from 
the angry god. And what you're doing is you are basically going through, uh, there is a map, a small, smaller map down at the bottom of the play mat here. And basically you are going through and you're going through the different continents in the area and basically going on different quests or adventures and going through and doing different things to beat champions. So this game, you're tracking everything on a pad and you'll have your health and you'll have your ability to attack and some of that is going to be manifest on ships. You're going to have chips that are going to have uh, some other characters as well. That'll be part of uh, your repertoire, your entourage or whatever. And you're going to go through and you're going to take... Um, at each stop on the map, you are going to go ahead and do something different. So you might draw an opportunity card. These cards will allow you to uh, have a game effect. Like if you do this sometime in the game, such as, uh, you know, beat a, beat a, um, a baddie with, uh, you know, maybe two health left. That's all you have is two health. Then it allows you to hit this goal. And then that gives you additional strength, additional powers that you can have. Uh, you know, to uh, or abilities that you have to uh, to go ahead and continue to press through the game. So you're going to be progressing. You might do a absolute combat uh, where you're just doing this uh, this blood sport where you're just it's combat in the arena, and so you're going after that. You may have this king of the hill or capture the flag kind of contest because each place you're going, there's going to be a neoprene map where you have, and it's just going to be a little hex arena. And you're going to have these different simulations. So um, you're going to have three different styles. You have these opportunities. You'll have the blood sport. Or you'll have the, the sporting event. And as you're doing this, you are ticking things off throughout the week. You're going to be playing this over the course of four weeks and the games. But you're also going to have the baddies are going to continue to go ahead and get influence. And so if those influence continues to grow, strength of everybody else against you, the different baddies and the different scourges you find are going to get stronger and can have some negative effects against you. The game is really a build up to that last level, the scion that you're going to play because again, if you accomplish that, if that's the goal, then you're going to go ahead and win. So there's a lot of different uh, ways to play this. The game is definitely not going to be the same each time. I've played it five times. I've gotten through about half a week. Um, maybe a little bit less than, I think it's 12, 12 things is a week. So uh, I've had some fun with it. I want to get it to the table again because uh, I've playing it and uh, playing it. And it's kind of like one of those games where you can just play a game, then you forget about it, you go on to something else. But I've liked it quite a bit so far. I want to get it to the table again and have a dedicated evening or afternoon where I can just go ahead and just do it to the exclusion of everything else, really get into it. But so far, early returns for Frenchie has been positive, and uh, it's a great solo game. So that is Hoplomachus Victorum from Chip Theory Games. So next game, uh, again, cute game. I've mentioned this, I think, the last episode. And how can you go wrong? It's from Arcane Wonders, and that is, no, excuse me, Cardboard Alchemy. Okay, um, and that's Flamecraft. Flamecraft is a really beautiful game of dragons where you have a town that has different shops with different cards. And so each dragon can go to town. Each, each shop in the town will give you different resources. And then as you're going through, you're also able to go ahead and get these resources. And then you can also acquire through your travels through the town additional dragons, which you'll play these dragons on the shop. And then it'll allow you to do different things. And then you have these enchantments in the center of the board. You can trade in the resources. You can enchant the shop. That's going to give you points. And uh, basically the way to go ahead and do that, you also have 
um, different artisan dragons. There's artisan dragons and fancy dragons. That's the name of it. And those fancy dragons will allow you to have game scoring effects such as during the game there'll be a little sun, which means you can do it during the game, and then the night means you can do it at the end of the game. And the game is very modular. It plays up to five people. You start off with six shops. You can have about 14 shops on the board. So as the spaces get filled up uh, and there's, there's less and less options to play different cards, you're actually able to go ahead and do more and see different shops. Uh, and the game just aesthetically is cute. It's fun. If you get the deluxe version, it's really well produced. But if you don't get the deluxe version, it's still an incredibly well produced game. And it's one of those games where it's a, to me it's a don't judge a book by a cover game because you look at the game, that's ah, cute, it's trite, that's not for me because I'm a serious gamer. And yet you play it and you're like, wow, there's some really good gameplay uh, in here. This, it was well thought out, mechanics are solid, it works together, some good strategy, and it's really about trying to grind out the points, manage resources, manage the card play, manage the, uh, the worker placement. Uh, as you uh, as you put the dragons on the board and you know do I go here and then do I have to pay a dragon because they're already on there or do I go somewhere else so really fun game and quite a again quite a bit of variety uh, I guess there's a ton of promos that are available for it as well but uh, it's a game that's easy to teach easy to get up easy to explain intuitive like I said and uh, really a joy to uh, to have around so I won't go into into it too much uh, but Flamecraft is a fantastic game from Cardboard Alchemy and a game that I'm going to continue to have as part of my repertoire to bring out to my game group. At least once a month, I'll probably have this in, uh, in the repertoire and see if, uh, see if it gets to the table. But I think it's going to continue to resonate for quite a while. So another game that I would say is in the same vein. Uh, seems like a cute game, but it gets a little obfuscated and a little like, what is that based on the title? Um, and that's probably one of my favorite games from 2022. Flamecraft, again, also being a favorite game from 2022. First Rat. And First Rat is from Pegasus Spiel. And it's a game of rats. Each player is a rat trying to go ahead through the junkyard and get different resources to build a spaceship to be the first rat to get to the moon. Because that big hunk of cheese, it's got to be delicious. So... Interesting. My son was telling me different scientific things about the moon and everything as well. And uh, it's just funny when your kid becomes an adult and they start thinking at a much different level, like an adult level. And you're like, OK, you're not a little boy anymore. So it's just weird. It must mean the Frenchie's getting older. So but uh, we had that conversation just a few hours ago. So each player is a rat on this board. And what you're doing is you are moving your rats up the board and collecting resources. You can either move one rat. Uh, up to five spaces, or you can move two rats, uh, two of your rats, uh, one of three spaces, but each rat has to land on the same color oval. The spaces are oval. Uh, that doesn't mean the resources will be the same, but you know you uh, and but they cannot land on the same spot. You can land on the same spot as another rat, but you have to pay them one of the cheese tokens to do that. Uh, and then on those spaces, you're collecting resources. Those resources can be used to buy ship components. You get a ship component. Uh, Turn the resources, and then you put your cube on there, which means I'm going to score points based on what's available on that scoring track. I built that ship component, and then you get additional points if you're able to build all three ship components. There's another track to do that. You can turn all your cheese resources in and score points that way. You can go ahead and get your rat all the way up to the end of the track, score points, and then you have an option of getting a three-point token or putting another rat on the board. You can go ahead and... Um, 
go through this other track where you're moving around on the bottom and you can get comic books. Those comic books will allow you to have different scoring abilities, such as uh, doubling up on resources and everything, um, or making your rats uh, unique characters like Rastronaut um, or Arnold Ratnager, and they give you different abilities for that individual rat. Or you can go through the track a little bit longer on the bottom and go ahead and get additional rats so you can have more than two rats on the board. Or you can just go all the way the long way around the track. That means you just score points on that track. Now, one of the clever things about this game that I like is there is a, a track that coincides along the winding track where most of the gameplay is going to be. And that is a light track. And so you have this light token that exists um, alongside the track. And every time you land on a space with a light token, you will go ahead and move that light token up those that amount. What happens is as you're going through the light track um, or going through the track, you land. If your light bulb, if, if, if where you are, where that particular rat is on the track and it's behind where your light bulb is. So if I move my light bulb up halfway through the track and my rats are on places that are on that bottom half of the track, they're behind my light bulb. So each of those spaces, not only do I get to take the resources that are depicted on that space, but I'm also going to take one additional resource. Okay, so this is two tin cans. I'm going to pick up three. This is one baking soda. I'm going to pick up two. So it allows you to, to uh, get additional resources and manipulate that. You can also get points if you move your light up and there's a couple of different uh, markers where you can get points for how far your light track has progressed through the game as well. A lot of tracks, a lot of point salad here. You also have three spots where you can visit some of your friends like a frog uh, and a hamster and a raven and get uh, backpacks that give you additional uh, resources or energy drink that allows you to get twice as much spent once or you get bottle caps to allow you some end game scoring. Now, the game on one side is just printed. It's a static map just printed. A lot of variability. On the back side, you flip it up and there is a modular board where you have these tokens which are the same shape of the oval spaces and... Uh, you know, you go ahead and you can mix them up and, and, and do that. And there's also different scoring tracks you can place on there as well. So the game is fun. The game is that Euro game that I think most Euro gamers can sink their teeth into. I would say it's a um, just shy of a medium weight Euro game. Uh, not quite highly up there, but it's definitely not a lighter weight Euro game. It's a game that's got some nice strategic gameplay. Worried about being efficient, worried about how to maximize those moves. You know, do I move one rat? Do I move more than one rat? Um, do I need that? Do I really want to pay the cheese? What's the way for me to go about it? And the game seems very balanced. It seems like you can go ahead and uh, have different ways of scoring. I've seen people win in a variety of different ways. So it's a fun game. It's become my favorite game, not my all-time favorite game of 2022. But it's a game that I'm going to continue to play long, long time. Because not every game that you say, for me... If I say, okay, these are my top games of 2022, um, that doesn't mean that necessarily I will play those all the time. Like my top game of 2021 was Ankh, okay? I've played Ankh maybe twice last year in 2022. That doesn't take away from the fact that to me, it's still my number one game of 2021. I just don't play it as much as some of the other 2021 games because accessibility or the group I'm at. First rat to me, is one of those games that I'm going to continue to play, probably play more than most, if not all the other games in 2022. That remains to be seen because we're just barely past it. But I'm going to be playing this game repeatedly. I'll probably wear the whole thing out at some point as well. And you'll probably see the box have a lot of tape on it at some point. But that is a game that I that I like because I can teach it. 
It's quick to disable. Everyone knows it. It's satisfying on the gameplay. Tickles some itches for a lot of people. And just a fun, you know, different type of, of theme that you really don't see. So that is uh, First Rat. And uh, if you have not played that, please, please, please play with somebody. Guarantee that you'll probably like it and check that out. Okay, so I'm going to go a little heavier right now with another game that I feel, um, to me, it, you know, it's continues to hover around number one for 2022. Um, I love Steffenfeld. Steffenfeld has been one of my favorite designers. He's had a hot hand, and then his hand got cooled, and then his hand has continued to uh, resurface in the last few years with games such as Bonfire. And uh, so he came up with a city collection, which is in, uh, for the most part, a re-implementation of other games that he has designed. And uh, so he created Hamburg, which is a re-implementation of my favorite field game to date, uh, Bruges. And uh, then he came up with um, uh, Amsterdam, which is uh, the re-implementation of Bora Bora. I believe New York City uh, is another one too. But the fourth game in that series is Marrakesh. Marrakesh is an original game. While it does have a similar mechanic of Cascading Tower where you're dropping uh, items into it, a la Amerigo, uh, it's a totally new game. So Marrakesh is basically, uh, in, the, in the city of Marrakesh, what you are trying to do as players, and again, in the way that Phil does, very much a point salad game. There's a lot of different things you can do all over the board and on your player mat to allow you to get points. And it's really looking at what choice do I have and saying, well, I've got this choice or that choice or this choice. How do I do all these things? And uh, what's my opportunity cost? So in Marrakesh, everyone's going to have a player board. You're going to have this large map on the board where you're going to have these um, different stacks of, uh, of scrolls that are going to give you immediate or in-game effects uh, that you can purchase. You're going to have these luxury good tiles where if you're able to purchase them, uh, they will give you in-game points. You have a... Uh, another tile next to that where that allows you to trade in some resources to get uh, some other resources as well. You have two tracks at a parallel palace track and a uh, the black track is, I can't remember what it's called, but basically that's a moss track or whatever that you're moving up. And so those two tracks are neat because not only are you getting uh, a coin every time you cross the threshold of a section, but as you cross the threshold, there are lines connecting this segment or this section of one track to another one, and you're going to have three or four different resources that are strung on, and you get your pick of which resource you want to do. Maybe it's additional coins, maybe it's additional points, maybe it's another one of the red cylinders called Keshis, or colored cylinders called Keshis, more of that to come, and so you'll be able to do that. Then you have these gates that are depicted in four different zones. Each of them have a different cost. It could be as little as zero cost, but you're going to lose three victory points. Or you go ahead and spend three and gain seven victory points. Those gates you'll play on your player board. Then there's a river track in which you can propel up the river based on your player board. And then you can get different points and different resources from that. But really the game is centered around your player board. And so your player board is going to have different zones. You'll have an oasis zone, uh, an orchard zone where you can get dates, which one of the resources besides water and dinar, which is the money. You're going to have a... Um, uh, a gate area uh, kind of in the central part you'll have the palace part you'll have the other part where you're going to have the uh, the sultans and the mosques um, you'll have another spot where you're going to have this pink area in the bottom corner where you have a wheel that's going to allow you to get 
as a multiplier uh, based on how the wheel turns. You're going to get different resources for that. You've got another common market or souk, S-O-U-K. They're going to put different color keshis in, and that's going to allow you to get different resources uh, to go ahead and activate different things. You'll have a, uh, a blue area where you're going to put the blue keshis, and you're going to move up the the river based on how many you have there. And then the red keshis will be water. You'll get additional water resources. So these keshis are really the core mechanic of the game. So every player starts out every round. There are going to be... Uh, uh, three seasons and four rounds. So you're gonna have 12 Keshis, each of the 12 different colors. And so you're gonna look at your board and you're gonna say, okay, these are the Keshis that I wanna play because I wanna activate these things on my board. I wanna go into the green area and get dates because I need those resources to do these different things. So let me go ahead and I'm gonna take the green Keshi and then I wanna move up the river track. I'm gonna take the blue Keshi. And then, you know, I like to buy a gate. So let me take the beige Keshi as well so I can go ahead and do that. And then everyone's going to figure this out. And they're going to take the cashies behind a screen so it's hidden. And then they're all going to reveal their cashies. When they reveal their cashies, they're going to take the sultans of their color, put that on the player mat in that specific spot of the board. And uh, that's going to be the actions they're going to take. Then they're going to go ahead and collect all the cashies. And one player is going to drop all 12 cashies, or however many, three per player, in the tower. This tower is designed to go ahead and capture those cashies and may or may not dispense all of them. So you might drop 12 cashies in if you have a four-player game. Well, guess what? Only 10 come out because two of them got stuck in the tower. That's a purposeful design. Maybe you have all 12 come out. Maybe you throw 12 in there and 14 come out because two were stuck the last time. So there's a little bit of this randomness because the cashies I put in, which I want to have come out so I can draft them and hopefully activate them on my map, may not come out. So what is going to be the other options for me as well? So as they come out, you'll organize them, and then players in order will go ahead and draft them. They can select uh, up to two Keshis of one color. Uh, and then if you have a spot like black uh, and there's only one Keshi there, that's the one you want. You can only select one. You can't select a second one. If there's three on one, you can only take two. So you might be leaving that other one for somebody else. So there's a lot of interaction regarding that, and then it's really activated on the board. But you're taking those Keshis, and everything you do on your map, on your map is based on how strong the cashies are. So if I have three blue cashies, I get a fourth one. When I move my raft up, I'm gonna move one, two, three, four spaces. If I put a fifth one on the orchard, then I'm gonna take five dates, okay? If I have, my, if it's my first one, I'm gonna take one date. So uh, it's really, really clever. I think this is one of Stefan Bell's top three designs. I don't know where it's gonna land for me. Uh, Bruges is my favorite. Uh, I'm still kind of uh, hovering around Hamburg. I think Hamburg is a great game. I want to play it uh, a little bit more and get a different group of people together with that. But Bruges, to me, is my favorite, although Castles of Burgundy, to me, is his best design. I'm going to put Marrakesh right up there, right in the beginning. I think it's just a brilliant game. I love the game. Um, I just got I got to open it up because my friend Chuck is hammering me. Uh, they came in this weekend. He printed some 3D printed gates. I did not get the deluxe version. And I guess the deluxe versions have been a little tough to get out of the uh, fulfillment center uh, because, you know, some of the severe weather that's, that's, that's happened and some of the problems with logistics here in the States. Um, but those cardboard, uh, those cardboard gates are very tough to get in the recessed boards. So I got some 3D printed gates. So I'm going to crack those open. I'm excited for that. I just love Marrakesh. It's my type of game. I fell in love uh, my very first convention and I had been in the board game 
a hobby for two years, just playing with friends. But it was my first time really getting out of, of a group of friends. Went to a board game convention. And my first game I played there was Bruges. Fell in love with it. I have it in my collection. It is it is a favorite one. I love Stefan Feld designs. They just sing to me. They're my type of design. And so Marrakesh is welcome addition to that. A much bigger box than the other ones in the City Collection. But that is uh, my, my favorite of the City Collection so far. I'm looking forward to the two new ones that are going to be uh, crowdsourced and coming up on Kickstarter at some point in 2023 here. But I cannot say enough good things about Marrakesh. Uh, I, I just really appreciate that and there's some originality and that uh, not every game in the city collection was a rehash and that he came up with something original and he's hit it out of the park as far as i'm concerned okay so we'll go over with one more game that i played and then i'm just going to go ahead and focus a little bit more on uh the last game that i want to really uh spend a little more detail on and that's ready set bet so the next game here that's in our way is oros oros is uh is a game it's a uh, tile placement game. It's a manipulating game, too, uh, with grid movement and worker placement. It's from, um, I'm going to say AESC, so I'm going to pronounce it ASC Games uh, here in the States. And so this is a game in which you are a demigod. And you are basically, you have a player map, and uh, you are basically taking your demigod, and you are uh, moving these wisdom markers up to allow you to take that action on these different tracks. You have eight different tracks and it allows you to do different things on the map. The basic part of the game is that you have these tiles on the map. And so there'll be island tiles. There'll be tiles that have um, of the four sides, one is land, three or water. Then there's going to say two, which means two of those sides, two of those edges are water and two of them are land. Three means three are land, one's water, and four means all four sides are going to be land. Then you have mountain tiles. And so what you're going to be doing is you are going to be moving your workers and placing some workers on the board and activating some of the actions there. And then moving the tiles. You could be doing different things like you could be deploying some of your, uh, some of your workers there to study, which allows you to gain some bonuses. You can be moving different tiles. You could build a tile uh, there as well. You can take the volcanoes because you're going to have each tile um, has a possibility to house a volcano and then you can erupt a volcano which means that volcano erupts and then that landfill starts to fill up. So if you have a tile of three with a volcano and you erupt that volcano then that volcano is going to fill up that one piece of water that's there. So you're going to swap that tile out for three for a four because now all four sides are there. And if, and if that's the volcano has a level one, if the volcano has level two, then that'll fill up that one spot left in that. And now it's going to spill out into the next tile flowing out. Okay. And so you will be moving tiles around and land masses. You will be erupting volcanoes. And really what you're trying to do is you are trying to collide some of the tiles because if you can collide or slide into each other, um, two tiles that are of, of uh, both four, you create a mountain. Once you create a mountain, then you can start to go ahead and build these different shrines. There's three different types of shrines, but players can build shrines on top of each other. You cannot build a, a one shrine on top of another. So there's um, obelisk or monolith, uh, shrine, temple, or whatever are I think the three of them, and they're different sizes, but you play one, somebody else can 
play on top you can't build on your own. So there's a little bit of interaction and trying to uh, stage and manipulate in time where you're going to go ahead and do everything. So there's a lot on this game. It's a spatial puzzle at the end of the day. And as such, this spatial puzzle, um, it requires a little bit of thinking and understanding, okay, how do all of my actions work out? How do I plan on this to go ahead and move these tiles? Because really, I want to go ahead and get um, these tiles and score points based on, you know, how many monuments I'm getting and moving tracks up and everything. Because as you move these tracks up on your player board, you're going to be getting more points. And then based on three of the tracks on the right-hand side, those are going to be points based on the types of shrines, temples, monoliths that you've played on the board. So you're trying to move these wisdom caps up on each of the tracks that allows you to get a better action or use any of the lower actions and do more and maybe even more a little bit fine-tuned so you can actually do the things that you want. Maybe not move three sets of tiles. Maybe I can just move one and I can move that in any direction to do whatever I want. So, but you're also getting some top tier scoring points if you get these tracks up to a certain level. If you get all your wisdom tiles to a certain level, uh, then that unlocks other workers that you can incorporate on the board. So it's a lot of tracks, a lot of worker placement, and really manipulating the tiles. And the board state is always different. And one of the peculiar things about the board, which really has, you really have to think about it too, and it takes, I think, maybe a good game to really fully grasp it, is that the board is supposed to encompass a globe. Now, it's a flat two-dimensional board on a grid, but it's not a grid that actually ends in, in corners because the corners are kind of staged, and then there's arrows around the side, and there's two boards. There's a larger map. There's a smaller map based on which side you're on. But if you move a whole row, because you can move a whole row of tiles, if you're on the outer edge, that's every tile around the outer edge because if you think about it, this is supposed to be a globe, so I'm wrapping this around the entire ring. So you almost have to think about 3D how this 2D representation, and it makes sense how they do it and how they explain it, but it's really trying to get your mind to take a 2D board and understand the three-dimensional movement of the tiles to allow you to go ahead and leverage uh, your plays and your turns to do what you need to do. So it creates a really interesting thought process besides trying to play tiles, slide them, and move. You almost have to think in that more abstract or three-dimensional realm. So. I don't think it's a game for everyone. I think it's an enjoyable game. Uh, I guess the solo mode is pretty cool. I'd like to try the solo mode. Um, but it's a really interesting game. I got it right at the beginning of January. So really uh, figured I'd tear into that. And uh, I think it's an interesting game. I don't know where it's going to be. There are aspects of the game I like. There are aspects of the game that I want to test a little bit over time and play it and get in front of the right people. I played it with two friends of mine virtually. So we each had two copies of the board. And uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, I'm not going to say it's a great game, but I think it's a solid middle weight game that uh, is very, very good. So that's from AESC Games, uh, Ace Games, and that's Oros, O-R-O-S. And uh, that concludes the games before I go into my main game for the week. So my main game for the week. Um, 2022 is interesting because 2022 was a fantastic year for games. And what happened is there, there sometimes there are a bunch of games that just kind of pop for some reason. All these roller rights came out, or a lot of troops on the map games, or wow, there's a lot of trick-taking games. And uh, I think last year, and I'm not gonna say that this was the, the year for racing games, but when you think about it, three racing games 
really made some waves last year. I already mentioned Heat Pedal to the Metal. Another one that I have is uh, Long Shot the Dice Game, you know, a, a roll and write game and a very popular game. And I can play up to eight players and just really fast and, and really fun. One game that I did not hear of that I wasn't aware of until I started seeing some of these end of the year reviews. I'm like, how the heck did I even miss that game? It's a game from AEG Games. AEG Games has really, in my opinion, come out with some really cool games in the last few years. Uh, Point Salad being a really solid one uh, and one that's a go-to and everything. And, and Point City is its sequel that's coming out or slated to come out in 2023. Um, Guild of the Merchant Explorers, great game for 2022 uh, with cubes. So instead of a flipping right, it's kind of a flipping cube or flipping uh, build or whatever like that. Santa Monica is a very underrated game from AEG. So they've just been hitting a really good stride of some games that have been surprising games, solid games that tend to fly under the radar. But this one really got a lot of notoriety. This is a betting game, horse betting game, and it's ready, set, bet. Now, I had heard of it. I was intrigued with uh, end of the year reviews. And then uh, when my friends Lane and Amy opened up, they had kind of did a little bit of a, a revamping of their game house and doing some different things. And so when they um, when they said, hey, you know, we're ready to start off the new year and we're going to start off on this week. And here's one of the feature games that we have ready, set, bet. I wanted to play it, uh, but I didn't play it that particular week. I played it the following week. And so what ready, set, bet is, it's a game in which you have a number of different horses and the horses are numbered, um, I would say 2 to 12, but there's 2 and 3, and then there's 11 and 12. So uh, there's two horses that have the end 2. So basically, each horse is based on the number distribution if you roll two dice. So there'll be a horse that has number 2, horse that has number 12, and then a horse that has each number in between. I believe the 2 and 3 and the, and the 11 and 12 are, are, are joined together. But... If you think about a typical D12 distribution, 2D12 distribution, where you roll two dice, you're going to have, obviously, more rolls for seven. Those of you who play craps definitely understand that. And you're going to have fewer rolls for the lower numbers because there's only two ones. So those are not going to show up nearly as much as a four and a three or a five and a two or a six and a one to hit seven. So the game is designed in which there is uh, this mechanism where if the same horse is rolled twice in a row, they get to move up faster. They get additional movements because you're moving all the horses on this track that everyone can see on the top board. So you have one person who's rolling a dice and they are uh, moving the horses and kind of calling the game a little bit. And they're moving that up. And then, um, and you know, so you're watching the horses go. So the main part of the game is not just rolling and watching the horses go, oh, that's fun. But the core board is a board that looks like a betting board, almost kind of like what you would see at, you know, the big spread on a roulette table. And you have three different groups. You have win, place, and show. Obviously, the horse that finishes first is win, place is second, show is third. And so every player is going to have a certain amount of chips that they have or tokens. And they're going to be able to go ahead and place these on there during the race. And so it's almost kind of a fast-paced uh, way of play because there are also up on top you're going to bet on which color horse can win and there are some other betting spots on there for different things but you are going to go ahead with your chips each chip is going to have a number amount and that number amount is going to multiply by i'm betting this amount because you're going to have a pool of money that you're going to have uh you know a, a, a yeah pool of money not everyone's pulling it but you know you have your own pool of money and so 
based on that, you're like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and bet six times this space. This space means if my horse wins, I'm going to get three times what I bet on there. So I'm going to put the five chip on there. I put it on the times three. That horse wins. I'm going to get 15. But it's first come, first serve. So you have each horse is going to have a betting spot along the lines of win play show. And then you have all these other side bets that are going on as well. And so if I'm going to go ahead and place on the very last track on win on horse number seven, for instance, and I go ahead and place that, but I'm a little late and somebody puts their chip on that space before me, then I've got a choice of whether I bet at all or I just put on the space behind that. And so there's a little bit of a timing thing. So you're trying to figure out as the race progresses, okay, how are the horses going to go? What do I do? But the game moves very fast because of the dice rolling. And so what happens is because you roll the dice, you move the horses, people are betting. All right, we're done. Good. We roll again and you do that. So the turns are very, very quick. What happens is as the game progresses and the horse is moving, you start to see a tendency of, well, this one's out in front, um, but this one's moving or these horses that are on the lower numbers typically won't get enough lower numbers. So maybe I'll wait until some of the other horses catch up. So you might be waiting to see where the outcome of the game is. And so there's a little bit of that where, hey, I'm going to wait a little bit, play it safe, see if I can get a tendency, and then bet a little smarter. Problem with that is there's a red line on that upper track where the horses are. And on that red line, if the third horse passes the red line, all bets stop. And then you just have to go ahead and watch how the rest of the race goes. So if you wait too long, you could lose out on betting. But if you bet too early, you have a chance of betting and gambling. So the game creates a very high-risk, high-reward uh, you know, way of playing, way of speculating. Um, the other thing is I have seen a, I saw a game, this was the week before I played, but I was able to watch like a, a game and a half and where one of the horses actually ran out in front and it was one of the lower numbers, like number four, ran out in front and continued to go. And so everyone was waiting for the, for two more horses across the red line because that red line is about three quarters across the track and that horse finished out. And so people were like, you know, so, you know, they were waiting to say, well, I'm going to wait a little bit because we'll wait for three horses. No possible way that horse number four, which only has a couple of different combinations to get, is going to get there. And it did. And people were like, whoa, you know, so sometimes that, that horse race will finish much faster than you anticipate. Uh, and I like how the game is constructed to minimize some of those probability uh, that typically happen in a in a bill curve and really have a fun environment. It's a fast-paced game. You can get a little bit of analysis paralysis if you're not careful. So you've got to be able to be quick and decisive and do it. And it's risk-reward. It's all fun. Now, there's other cards. There's VIP cards, which allow different betting to go on and everything. But it is a fun, fun game. It's one of those games where you can go ahead and you can play two, three races, crank them out in an hour, have a blast. Uh, you can't take it seriously. It's a very approachable game. One of the things that I like about it is, and I don't know if this is purposeful in the actual design of the game, but if you have somebody who is a good, I call I call the caller, I'm not sure because I haven't read the rules. I just participated in the game and played along with a bunch of people who most of them have played it already. Anyway, um, you have somebody who's a good caller, they can make the game fun because they have a little personality and everything as well and I have a little bit of fun. So Ryan, who I mentioned earlier on the segment about his game that he's going to be crowdsourcing um, down down the road there. Um, 
he's typically the house caller, basically. So whenever that game's played, he's just there playing that. Now, what he did was interesting, because I don't think this is included in the game. He printed up a couple of dry erase sheets uh, that just had these uh, grids. And so he asked everybody, let's just go ahead and name the horses. So you're naming the horses. And so, you know, you might have a horse that's like a tender biscuit or a slow foot. And then we, you know, you might have a name that's, you know, a pun or something like that. We had one in the game. Somebody goes, Mark, you know. So it's funny when he was calling the game and he's like, and Mark goes up two spaces, you know. It's just funny, you know, or Mark's bringing up the rear. So it creates some real fun. So I think the game lends itself to create another layer of fun on top of it. But just based on the basic game and everything and, and how it's designed, it is a very fun game. Uh, you know, is it that sweet spot game that Frenchie likes, the big epic games, the, the grindy Euro games? No, but again, I can appreciate every game. I am an Omni gamer, and that's a game where you can grab a whole bunch of people. You can grab up to nine players and have a fantastic time. I was really, really excited for playing it. I was really happy about it. I will readily play it again because that game is so fun. It's so addicting. A great game to wrap up a good nights of gaming or even start off your gaming night to get the juices flowing and, uh, and set the tone for the evening. So ready, set, bet. Fun, fast game. Very friendly, very accessible, and uh, just always a thrill to play. And uh, the game that I wanted to cap out this episode uh, here on Frenchie Plays Games. So, everybody, hey, thank you so much for joining. And uh, again, I am uh, looking at a very chilly night tonight. So it's going to be a lot of bundling up. Uh, but I'm staying warm and hope you are as well. And if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, stay warm, enjoy your summer. But... That is it for episode 17 of Frenchie Plays Games. And until next time, take care of yourself and play nice.